Well, thank you, Joe, very, very much. Good morning, everyone. It is delightful to see everybody here today. For those of you that are joining us online, welcome to you as well. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, two things about uh, the offering for the widows and the orphans. I mean, that almost sounds uh, cliched, uh, but it is not a cliche. Um, these are families um, who have been displaced uh, because of the uh, riots of the Hindus against the Christians in that area. Many of them are sleeping outside. They don't have food. They don't have basic necessities. So this offering will go to help uh, with some food and some blankets and some other things that will help ease their suffering a little bit. So do be in prayer for them. Um, and then the, uh, the other thing had to do with our our, our uh, psalm that we did for the responsive reading. And I just wanted to point out something to you that struck me as we, we read through it. You, if you take a look at it there in your bulletin, um, and this, I'm not really going to use this as an introduction necessarily to the message today, but I think this is something that is worth considering. In the first verse, it says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And that sounds very much like uh, something we would use for a benediction, right? At the end of a service, we'd ask the Lord to pour out his blessing upon us. And we kind of stop the thought there, usually. We're, we're inviting the Lord to bless us, inviting him to encourage us, inviting him to uh, protect us and guide us and show his favor to us. But you notice there is not a period at the end of that verse. It goes on. When we do the benedictions at the end of the service, or when we, we pray this kind of prayer for the Lord's blessing, let's be sure to have this, the psalmist's attitude as we do so here, and mindset, that we're not just asking for the Lord's blessing and his favor to come upon us so that we can feel good, so that we can uh, be happy, uh, so that um, we can um, you know, congratulate ourselves that we are in the, Lord's, uh, in the Lord's favor. Why is the blessing asked? It is so that his way would be known on, on the earth and his saving power would be known among all the nations. We're praying for his blessing upon us so that we will be equipped and enabled and energized to go and testify of him through our worship. So in a way, I guess it is actually a bit of an introduction to what we're going to be talking about today. We want the Lord's blessing. We pray for it. But let us not uh, pray for it in any sort of self-serving kind of way, but with the idea that uh, his favor, his grace poured, upon, poured out upon us will enable us to glorify him in the earth. Well, once more, we're going to turn to the book of Numbers. And if you would do that, please, it's Numbers 15 again. And I will read once again verses 37 through 41. And I would invite you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Numbers 15. 37 to 41. 
Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Yahweh, your God. And the Lord adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. So today, I intend to wrap up our little mini-series here on this, this uh, brief but fascinating passage in Numbers 15 about the tzitzit, the tassels that Israel was commanded to put on the corners of their garments with a thread of blue in them to remind them uh, of the glories of heaven, the demands of a holy God, and particularly to, as we've seen it here I think, two or three times, that you would remember to do all of the commandments. The obedience is at the heart of this and a reminder to obedience because we are to be holy unto the Lord. And so we've been looking at different aspects of holiness, things that should remind us of the Lord's commandments. And uh, just a, yeah, I admit it, completely arbitrary assigning of uh, different areas of holiness to uh, these tassels. So we've looked at tassel number one was be holy in speech. And number two, holy in thought. Number three, holy in behavior. And those things, I think we can all understand how all of those go together so readily. In speech, our thoughts, our actions, all uh, should be as unto the Lord for His glory, following along in His commandments in those areas. Uh, we were looking at uh, some of those things in Sunday school this morning as we uh, were studying in the, in the first chapter of the book of James. The emphasis there upon obedience to the law of God. But the fourth tassel is one that uh, is also an occasion for us to remind each other of who God is and what his commandments are. And that is as we come into his presence to worship. So we're going to be talking about holiness in worship. Now, if you've... Uh, some of you have taken uh, some music classes with me, and uh, some of this may sound familiar to you, and uh, I make no apologies for that. A little review is a good thing. But of course, for many others here, it will uh, be uh, uh, totally new. We, as we've done with some of the other, with all the other tassels, we've kind of linked these tassels, since we're to be remembering what God's law is, and we think about being holy unto him. Uh, the, uh, the commandments that come to mind in this particular tassel, this particular point, uh, would be, for example, you shall not make unto yourselves any graven image of any likeness of any things in the heaven above or the earth beneath, the waters under the earth. Uh, the Lord uh, forbids that making of images. He, he cares about how we come into his presence and how he is represented. Um, 
Everybody, I think pretty much everybody here, except perhaps the very youngest, would know what the word slander means. Or defamation. When we do those to other people, when people carry out those actions against others, what are they essentially doing? They are misrepresenting whoever they're talking about. We call that slander or defamation. Um, sometimes it's malicious. Sometimes it's just ignorance. Sometimes it can even be well-meaning. But people, I, well, just think about it for yourself. Um, do you appreciate it when people misrepresent you to other people? And yet, for many in the visible church, it's a regular practice. Whether out of, out of rebellion, but I think more often than not, uh, well-intentioned ignorance, that God is misrepresented in the world by what is said about him, by the forms that we use uh, to communicate uh, uh, about him to the world and the very content uh, of the word that we take and, and twist to suit our own understanding without care. Those, frankly, are basically the equivalent of graven images because a graven image is trying to make a representation of something uh, according to our own imagination. Um, I know... I think most people here are aware of this, but uh, if, if, if not, and you've wondered, why aren't there any pictures of Jesus around here? Because we believe it violates this command. Um, we don't know what Jesus looked like. Um, he certainly isn't the beautiful white uh, European Caucasian with long flowing hair and so on that he's often depicted as. Um, in fact, we're told just the opposite. Well, for one thing, he's Jewish, but he's not a particularly handsome one. That he had no form or countenance that so we should desire him. If he had, maybe some of the Jews of his day would have been more prone to, to say, well, yeah, okay, this could be the Messiah, because he fits my image of the, the glorious, handsome king, you know, like King Saul, who was head and shoulders of everybody else, and the most handsome man in the land, and all of that. Yeah, we can get behind him. But they couldn't get behind Jesus because they could not find it in their hearts to worship him. And particularly worship him as he revealed himself. Another command uh, that uh, would come to mind here when we think about holiness and worship would be remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Lord prescribes the time that we are particularly set aside as a day unto him. It is not our day. We are to call the Sabbath a delight, as it says in the prophets. These kinds of commands come to mind when we think about holiness in worship. The writer of the Chronicles in 1 Chronicles 16 gives this command, give to Yahweh the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. 
Oh, worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness. Holiness. You know, I got to thinking, when I started this three weeks ago, did I actually define holy, holiness? I may not have. It's one of those words that we use a lot and we, we just assume everybody knows what we mean. But now's a good time to refresh our minds. In case I did, we, obviously if I didn't remember, you probably won't. Um, and uh, I'm thinking I, maybe I didn't. So now's a good time. Because worship is one of those things that because of the emotional nature uh, of it, that comes alongside, we're, you know, there's a reason behind that phrase worship wars in the church. Where the church, the local, local churches have been split down the middle because people couldn't agree on what kind of music they were going to do and what artists they were going to sing and whether they should use instruments, not instruments, which instruments, all those kinds of things. And people often come into a church and their number one criteria for whether they will return is whether they knew the song or whether it was the style of music that they liked or whatever. They, they, they're not listening so much to what's actually said from the word. It's more the feeling that they get. I'm not just making wild generalizations. That's fact of it. And the matter of holiness bears with this very simply for, uh, because holiness has to do with something that is, we often think of it in terms of set apart, but that's really sanctification. We are to be set apart unto holiness. Anybody remember from where, I know I've taught about it before. Does anybody remember that's been here a while? What's the opposite term of holy? Does anybody remember? Common. 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 I'm thankful that that was my wife. <laughs> that was good. I was beginning to get a little worried there. So. Um, yes, common. Common. When we talk about God being holy, we often think of that in terms of pure or the you know, absolute integrity of his character and all those kinds of things. But those are, are characteristics of, of him as holy and holy other than us. He is not common. Common is fallen. Common is weak. Common is fleshly. Common is... is um, um, limited but our God is infinite matchless eternal in every way in all of his being and all of his attributes he is something completely different than common completely different from us that's why he's so fearful you know when things are common and known and every day even when uh, you face problems with uh, something, whether it's uh, of something of great import or some just you get into a do-it-yourself, fix-it kind of thing at home and maybe you've never done it before, but 
it's a little fearful if you've never done it. You're not really sure, am I gonna electrocute myself, burn the, burn the house down, um, or something else, cause something that's gonna really cost me a lot of money or, or something else. But once you've done it a couple of times, or you go to YouTube, you know, you get a little bit of understanding about this and go, you know what, this really isn't all that big of a deal. It's common, it's every day, it's, oh, yeah, all right. And the, the fear goes away. You can never get to that point with the infinite, eternal God. And that's why it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. So when we come into his presence, it is to be with a sense of leaving the common behind, the weight that so easily besets us. And fix our eyes on the one who is completely and utterly beyond anything that we could ever imagine, and certainly beyond anything or anyone that we could ever control. He is utterly holy. And our worship, if it is not to be defamatory or slanderous, must be holy as well. That means that we are careful about recognizing what we say, that it's actually true about him. And because he does communicate to us about who he is and about how he wants to be approached, that means we need to pay attention to that and not just think that my good intentions are enough. In the, there's a lot of ink been spilled in the whole worship war thing in the past, you know, four or five decades. Uh, but uh, particularly early on, I'm not so sure that this is the, the uh, um, guiding um, principle for many artists, I think, have gone, hopefully have gone past this um, these days, but... I mean, it used to be published that what was really important was the intention of the singer or the intention of the worshiper. In other words, as long as I was sincere, that was good enough for God. Uh, it was all dependent upon, you know, uh, my understanding of what was right, my understanding of what was good. Now, there's a lot of little children here today. Um... How many of you parents uh, post their artwork on your refrigerator or somewhere else? Okay. Um, and we love it, do we not? And we receive it on, on um, the basis of the fact, not that it's really all that good necessarily, though... Some of you kids have some pretty remarkable talents, but uh, um, others are a little bit more in the Salvador Dali mode. Okay. <laughs> but that's one thing in our homes when, as parents, we look at this, and yes, it's the intent, the child's intent is to express love, and so we receive it. And we tend to think the same way about God. 
Well, as long as I, I know it's a scribble, I know it's a scrawl, I know the colors aren't right, it's not in the lines, or whatever. But God's just going to, God is going to love me anyway and accept my worship. But there's one glaring difference between those two circumstances. Do you know what it is? Most of you are holding it in your hand. Do you tell your child, okay, I will accept your drawing as long as it's anatomically correct, the colors are accurate, and, every, and it's recognizable. Right, you don't do that. God, on the other hand, has said, this is how I am to be worshipped. And we are not at liberty to set that aside. So I want to talk to you today about what holy worship is. And this is not going to be a list of, of uh, this song is okay and that song is not, or, or this or that or the other kind of thing. I'm going to be talking about principles here that I hope are helpful to you as we discern and sit before the Lord and say, all right, Lord, what is it truly acceptable in your sight? What is acceptable in your sight? Why did God ordain worship? Why did he ordain various elements of worship that he's done, such as music is, is a big one. It's usually the, the one we often think about. And I, my comments today are going to be kind of focused in that area, but really this principle should be expanded to every act of worship that we do, whether it's prayer or giving um, or just listening to the word uh, carefully. Um, God ordains worship and commands us to worship for two reasons. One is that he would be exalted properly by his creatures. And the other, as we read in Ephesians 5, 19, for example, that we uh, may edify one another as we sing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts to our Lord. It's, it's about exhorting one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's that corporate aspect of it as well. Now, as we worship him, we're going to be revealing whether or not we truly have the mind of Christ or if we're just uh, sitting here singing or praying or whatever so that we can uh, mostly minister to ourselves and that we're congratulating ourselves that we're doing the things that God wants us to do and we sure hope he's impressed. Uh, the mind of Christ will show itself in the goals of singing to one another. Those goals include showing gratitude to the Lord as a community, exhorting and encouraging one another unto godliness, and submitting to one another as instruments of the Spirit. Did you ever think about that when you were singing these hymns, singing the, the psalms? That you're not just singing in for your own in your own mind. That you're singing for the benefit of others, not to bless them with your voice. Okay. Don't care whether you sound good or not. It's a joyful noise, after all. What we care about is that you are a blessing to others because 
of what you say about God, reminding them of who he is and his faithfulness and what he does. You don't, I mean, sometimes we do know what's going on in somebody's life who's sitting next to us, but very often we don't, or at least we don't know enough details to realize that this hymn that we're singing, this psalm that we're singing, um, should be something that as they listen to it, maybe they're listening to it through tears in their hearts. Or they're filled with joy in some uh, other way. And that hymn, that psalm, gives them a vocabulary to express that joy that they didn't have before. And we're encouraging each other uh, as we do that, to essentially to join in together. All of this is to occur in the fear of the Lord. So in this last blue tassel, worship is about coming to God, uh, coming, I should say, coming into the presence of a holy God. So we need, to, we need to get it right as much as we are able. So let's, let's think about this. I have three principles we're going to develop here um, rather briefly. The first uh, principle is that holy worship must be Suitable. It must be suitable. Now, that's a big general word. Well, it's not a big word, but that means it's really general. <laughs> All right. What does suitable mean? Suitable sounds awfully subjective. It sounds like, well, you know, who are you to say that that's, that, you know, what you want to do is suitable, but what I want to do is not? I've had that question asked to me. And um, my answer is, it's not about what I say. It's a matter of who God is and what he said. And that's, that's what we, we still may come to a point of disagreement, but at least we actually have the actual, uh, we actually have truth that we're wrestling with rather than just whatever our preferences happen to be. So I want you to think about some things here. Uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 9, if you would. Take just a second here to look at this. Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 14 and 15. This may seem a little bit uh, odd passage to quote in this regard, but uh, bear with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What does that have to do with worship? Well, it's all about context. There are, for example, are folks that don't ever want to sing a hymn in the minor key. It's all got to be happy, major key, all upbeat, positive. And I like those two. Um, but I confess, I really like the minor key ones. Might be the Welsh in me, but oh, it's good stuff. Anyway, this is about having a suitable reaction to God's person and work in the context of your culture that you are involved in. It would be ludicrous if... If Jesus were, uh, we were in his physical presence, 
It would have been ludicrous, uh, just as it would have been for the disciples, if we're deciding we're going to be mourning while he's with us. Doesn't make any sense. We'll uh, we'll long for him. We'll have days of ache and heartache when we are apart from him physically. And certainly that happened with the disciples and it happens with us. The fact of the matter is, is that your life and mine are filled with lots of ups and downs. They're, you know, the the quote-unquote mountaintop experiences, right, that we have. Our hearts are full of joy. That's probably not a time to sing a dirge. But there are other times when we're we're filled with heartache, with hurt, with affliction. And singing a, a little Sunday school ditty that I'm so happy and here's the reason why is probably not going to be very satisfying to the soul either. And part of that's because of what the nature of music is. And really looking at the clock going, no, I cannot go into philosophy of music here. But why do, why do we sing at all? What is the whole purpose of music? It is to give expression of the soul in reaction to the reality around us. That is the whole reason that music is combined or composed. Composed. We see something, we react to it, our heart emotionally responds, and we, we respond in lyrically, and it changes within every culture, what that lyricness, lyric, lyricism sounds like. But it's a reaction, which is also, by the way, why all music is moral. There is no amoral music. I'll just throw that out there. Worship must show forth the image of God in the righteous culture that it portrays, that it gives voice to. Musical expression is always an image of the society that produces it, including not just large societies, but subcultures as well. Note the differences, for example, in classical music uh, and the various, as society in Europe shifted its philosophical base. You get it, medieval music, oh, it's great stuff. They've got instruments like sackbutts and other kinds of things. They've got this gritty kind of rah, visceral kind of feel to it. It's raucous. It's kind of rowdy. It's very simple. But then you get to the Baroque period and it's very orderly. You get to the impressionism uh, in the, in society that starts showing up in art and all of that. Less less concerns about actual reality, but more of the impression that it makes. And you see that coming up in uh, the class uh, with the, the classical music of that time period, all the way up until the modern period, where dissonance is often the name of the uh, uh, the name of the game. As because dissonance implies lack of uh, lack of peace and lack of harmony and tension, and we have a lot of that these days. Church music has followed similar patterns of change. It usually reflects the ecclesiastical climate of the day, and you can look at the chaotic nature of uh, societies, for example, that. Uh, uh, 
or a mindset, I'll put it that way, uh, out of which rose restlessness and rebellion, out of which the whole rock culture uh, uh, sprung, and its music reflects that. The depression that produces the blues, the lifestyle that nurtures country music and various other cultures that bring about all sorts of folk and ethnic music. Here's a question I have for you. Can there be a music that is an expression of godly culture? You read in Psalm 137 that the exiles, when they were, they were commanded, or urged at least, by their captors to sing us one of the songs of Zion, that they hung their harps on the willows and said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Because the Lord's music that they were talking about had to do with a music of joy and peace and contentment in God's blessing in their inheritance, in their land. How can we do this in exile? I think there is, there can be a music that is an expression of godly culture. And like I said, this is not going to be a, it only has to be in three, four time and cannot have any syncopation. There can never be a drum for, okay. That's not what I'm talking about. But there is such a thing as Christian music, and, it's, and, and I think that we can look at this from this standpoint by asking some questions. Does the musical response in both the music itself and the text accurately reflect life in the spirit? Contentment, peace, trust, joy. Even in the midst of tears sometimes, there's where the minor key comes in. Resolution out of chaos. I mean, is life in the spirit chaotic? Well, sometimes because of our sin, it can be. But if we're walking in him, there is resolution. Is life in the spirit depressed? Is it lonely? Is it dissonant? Is it sensual? Is it silly or trite? Is it dull? Oh, Christian music ought to be pretty exciting. Is it lifeless? Is it monotone? Mm, is that what life in the Spirit's like? No. Is it giddy without any connection to, to reality? Or is it frivolous? Is it mediocre? We just go along to see whatever sells. Is it materialistic? Is it self-absorbed? I would ask the question, when you're deciding what you want to sing and what you like, again, a lot of times I think during the worship wars and people on the conservative side of things tended to look at music as something that did something to people. After all, it killed plants in the greenhouse, so it can't be good for you. But I would suggest they've got it exactly backwards. That music provides you a voice. And you like what you like because of what your voice is and what you want to express. So my question for you is, what culture do your music preferences and worship in general preferences 
declare you to be a part of. 1 Corinthians 14, if you want to turn there real quick. Oh, I said I was going to finish this today. I'm not sure I'm going to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, beginning at verse 8. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Of course, this is talking about uh, prophesying and tongues and what's clear and what isn't. And Paul here is arguing against um, uh, tongues with, that are just uh, indulged in without any sort of understanding. And then you get to uh, verse um, uh, 15. And we read, uh, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. That suggests to me that our worship uh, requires some thought on our part as to what is truly suitable in the presence of a holy God. And if that means that we have to adjust our preferences, so be it. Unfortunately, many in this, in this whole discussion basically think, well, I feel it, it must be real. I have this emotional response, so therefore it must be okay because I can't help my emotions, which is a complete self-lie. We absolutely can help our emotions. The old standard illustration is uh, you can be, uh, um, you know, having a fight in the house, having a great old yell fest with each other, and the phone rings, and it's, hello? Yeah, that's not. <laughs> yeah, we can control our emotions, and our emotions, just like every other part of our being, are subject to accountability to a holy God. So our worship needs to be suitable in that what we actually say about him and in the way that we say it. And the form is important. You can have great words put to really sensual music that's music that's designed to, yeah, it's designed to make you move, it's designed to make you feel, it's designed to help you or just, you know, want a boogie. But the problem is, is that really suitable in the presence of a holy God? When you see what is in God's word about those who come into his presence, um, pretty much the typical thing is they're on their faces. And there's a few rare exceptions, like David dancing before the Lord. But even that, uh, and there were dancers and so on in the temple. And you look at that and think, all right, um, there's a way to dance that's that accentuizes sensuality and, and brings that out. And there's others that, ex, that emphasize strength and power and all of that and, and discipline. And uh, that's a whole different ball of wax. By the way, in case you're worried, I'm not going to start advocating for introducing dance into our worship. That's a whole other discussion. But on the other hand, if somebody got really, really excited and they jumped up and went, Yes! I would probably not object unless you did it a lot. Then we'd have to have a discussion. But it has to be suitable in the presence of God. Reflecting in our, in our, in our, the response of our flesh, the response of our minds, the response of our hearts, something that is true to him. That's how we're talking, that's what I'm talking about when I think about suitability. Uh, yeah, there's no way I'm going to finish this. So, 
Um, let me give you the fill in the blanks, and then you guys can think about this, and we'll, we'll tackle this next week. I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I, I should have known. Anyway, two more S words, okay? Holy worship is suitable. It's one we've just covered. But holy worship is also substantial or substantive. And then the last one is Holy Spirit is spiritual. And we'll develop those concepts a little bit, <laughs> at least next week. We'll see how we do on the substance uh, part there. Um, some of you, uh, depending on your background, you may be wondering when I'm going to talk about the regulative principle. That'll be next week which is one reason why it may take longer. But anyway, we're going to look at substantial or substantive worship as something that is uh, a, a, nece a necessity for worship that is holy and in, in the presence of a holy God. But I think for now, we'll stop there and uh, let our response, even as we will uh, sing another hymn here, a, a song of confidence, before the throne of God above in your hymnal 277, we're going to uh, sing that, stand and sing that together. Think about this in terms of what is my response as I'm singing this? Are these words that I'm, am I just going through and going through the motions because this is the time we sing now? Are these things true? If they are, sing them out with your heart um, so that it's evident to those around you that you actually believe this and encourage each other by your suitable worship uh, in the presence of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices as to uh, how we should think about coming to your presence. The principles that you give to us are really pretty clear. Lord, we struggle sometimes in knowing how to apply them in every case. Help us to humbly strive to do that as accountable to you. And help us to be charitable to one another. For we're all walking at different stages in our sanctification and understanding about things and still learning to discipline our emotions and see clearly so that we can respond rightly. Lord, help us to build up one another in our most holy faith so that our worship, through, through worship that is holy and true in spirit and in truth.